Hey everyone, I'm Andrew Coates. I'm the host of the Lift Free and Diet Heart podcast. Welcome to episode 302. Today's guest, Andres Vargas, is someone I've been working on getting for a while. It finally worked out. Andres has a master of science. He's a certified strength and conditioning coach and a strength and nutrition coach uh, for his business, The Strength Cave. And uh, today we get into a whole bunch of how to navigate social media training information, what's solid, what's nonsense, what's sensational, uh, what's overrated, and uh, should coaches specialize in training or nutrition or offer both, uh, and why Andres offers both. Stay tuned. Andres Vargas, it's actually really awesome to have you on the show uh, you and I have been circling each other for a while. We've actually chatted about having you on. It's taken a little while, so grateful it finally worked. Here yeah, on, no, on thanks, thanks so morning. much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I, it's just a pleasure to talk to somebody like yourself, somebody else in the industry, like-minded. So um, it's a pleasure. And I use this podcast often. Any long-time listeners heard me say this before. Some of my guests are old friends, people I've known for the in the industry and my travels, and some of my guests are people, it's one of my first opportunities to get to know you a little bit more and then share you with the people who are listening. So I, I want them to come check out your work, go follow you. We'll talk about that after. But I I wanted to get into something. So you tend to do a really good job with both exercise science, the training side of things, and the nutrition side. I'm going to go deeper in that theme, but I want to start here. And I want this to be useful to the everyday user as much as the trainers, because I think trainers are confused. But I actually think the training is getting more confusing. We're seeing mm. more complicated, different topics. I'll give some examples, but I think one of the phenomenon is that there are more people trying to brand around training concepts and ideologies. And of course, it's going to confuse trainers and the end user. So we've got TikTok biomechanics, which is totally out of hand. We've got a lot of optimization stuff going on, which gets a little bit crazy. I've seen the resurgence of like a lot of Mike Menser philosophy stuff, which is... Uh, yeah <laughs> full of some good stuff and some total rubbish and we've got the industry yeah. experts literally arguing amongst themselves how does he like the trainer figure this shit out how does the end user supposed to navigate this stuff that's a great question and I, I i do think that more and more the more access to information we have the more confused we seem to get <laughs> it's just like this buffet of information that nobody knows which one to choose and which one to believe but um you know, I think it, it goes back to hopefully having um, some understanding of physiology, some understanding of exercise science as a trainer, as a as a lay person, it's a little bit harder because if you don't have any training in that, you know, everybody seems like an expert because everybody seems to know more than you do. Um, you know, I, I think when you see somebody who is trying to, you know, maybe put their own branding on a style of training or put their own sort of label on it to make it seem like magic sauce. It's kind of the same thing that we see in the nutrition space where there's like this special diet or special method that is going to bring you to this goal that um, hopefully whoever's consuming the media that, that they're putting out will resonate with, right? Um, and so it's like, oh yeah, I, I really want to build muscle as fast as possible, or I really want to be, um, you know, as athletic as possible or, or whatever the adjective is. Um, and so whenever you see that, I, I think there's a little, little bit of a, maybe you need to take pause. Is it really that they're trying to say that is quote unquote special about this way of training or are there 
similarities to maybe everything else that I kind of see on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, um, you know, social media it is. And is that sort of um, the similarities between everything where the where the actual magic happens, right? I mentioned Menser, and this is probably one of my favorite examples. So for everybody listening, if you're not familiar with Mike Menser, he's a fairly famous bodybuilder. Uh, you know, he would have been one of the Arnold era contemporaries, maybe just a little bit after that. Now, he, he's been dead for a while. And what there are two sort of concepts that we're seeing around the Menser stuff. One is low volume and the other one is intensity. So we've seen a lot of this volume versus, int versus intensity sort of ideological battle um, within the industry in some places. And I think it's an oversimplified. If anything, I think it's like volume with intensity, right? But sure. what I'm, I, I think my issue with a lot of the Menser stuff is I think a lot of people fundamentally don't understand what was going on with Mike. So let's go through a few things and I want to hear your comments. But number one is Mike, from what I understand, actually built his physique for the most part with more traditional, you know, higher volume plus intensity methods, which were common in the era. Arnold Schwarzenegger was definitely a very high volume bodybuilder and most of his contemporaries were. Two, these guys, and, and Dorian Yates is another common example of mm -hmm. someone who's cited for lower volume, higher intensity. But number one is these these guys are some of the absolute genetic elite. So you can't extrapolate necessarily to everybody what will work too. They had access to absolutely cutting edge pharma, pharmacology at the time. Let's just put it <laughs> that way, right? So yeah, yeah that's yeah. going to play a role in it. Three, a lot of the time they were doing a fair bit of warm-up stuff before they got to this one mega all-out past failure, super crazy set, drop sets, you name it, uh, forced reps to where... Honestly, the volume of what they were doing was probably a lot closer to the higher volume stuff that people argue against anyway. Yeah. And, and and Mike, for sure, turned around and sort of branded around this methodology later in his career after having already built his physique. So what are your thoughts on all this stuff? My thoughts are sort of when you become more advanced like mike was it makes sense that you have to pick and choose your spots when you're going to go as you know hit a, an rpe 10 or go to failure or do a drop set um doing that for every single set for a high volume session is going to be exhausting and as a more advanced um athlete who can go deeper into the well so to speak with their uh, ner nervous system that's just going to be so fatiguing to be able to do that over and over again, right? So they built sort of the volume with those warm-up sets, like you said, and to get their body ready to perform this one all-out set to where now they're at a place with their physique, with their nervous system and everything else that they can go that hard and actually reach that failure point and it'll be stimulating enough for them to get some gains from it. But that's not necessarily a very viable way to go about it for people who are on the, uh, the other side of the spectrum. You, there's something in there, and the, the fatigue thing is huge, and I want to bring this out. When you consider these, these individuals, these examples, they're very large, they're very muscular, and therefore they're very strong. So from a recovery standpoint, they're dealing with pretty high loads, extremely fatiguing on the nervous system, uh, I'm, I'm not so worried about the cardiovascular system here, but certainly like musculoskeletal fatigue, stress, tendons, you name it. So what's I think lost, 
the more load you're working with, there's a, like there's a lot more stimulation on all those sort of things. Uh, and a good way, a good analogy to this is oftentimes anybody who's trained will notice that women on average will recover between sets faster than men. Faster. Right? That's yeah. usually what we observe. Now, I think fundamentally women also seem to like to train that way. I'll often use supersets more with women than with men. On average, women are going to have less muscle mass. That's on average, right? Their, their frames, especially upper body, you know, breadth of their shoulders, et cetera, uh, shoulder muscle mass, all that stuff, they have less muscle mass. So on average, and we're not talking about the outliers and the, and the, the really, really highly trained women who are crazy strong, like they're amazing, but on average, they're going to be using less load, right? Mm -hmm. And less load ultimately means less tissue disruption, less nervous system disruption. And so what happens? They're actually able to recover from those things intraset or yeah, interset faster. So if you get to the other extreme where you get Dorian Yates, right. the sheer amount of load, nervous system disruption, tissue disruption is so high that like you said, someone's simply just not going to be able to do repeated bouts of this stuff at a really, really high intensity level. And I think a lot of people right. don't fundamentally understand this. Yeah. And I think uh, another thing um, before I forget is like somebody's going to probably bring up like, well, there's Dorian Yates and then there's like somebody like Ronnie Coleman and, and how he trained with this super high volume still and very high intensity. The weights he was using were, you know, way more than than, you know, typical bodybuilder would use. And I think that maybe that goes in the like there's a well, they both built really great physiques. You know, you can argue back and forth whose was better. But um, uh, maybe that goes to, you know, as you get to that, to that later stage of uh, that, the, the amount of muscle that Dorian Yates and Ronnie Coleman built, it maybe only took that one all out set for Dorian to adequately stimulate the muscles to grow. Whereas Ronnie maybe already had reached that point with his first or second set of that he was doing. And those third, fourth, fifth sets that he was doing maybe weren't giving him the return that he thought, right? Um, but he just mentally thought he needed to do that much in order to keep progressing. Um, but yeah, getting back to what you you were saying, I think that that's definitely has a lot to do with it. The more muscle you have, the more you know fatiguing it's going to be to use all of that muscle to reach those type two muscle fibers and take those to fatigue. Um, and you're so much stronger at that point that just the sheer, um, you know, load that you're putting on your body is something that you have to manage in order to, you know, just survive your training. All right. And here's another one. I want to hear your thoughts on this too, because obviously Ronnie is well known for being, you know, I, I don't want to know how to categorize it. It's like, He's he's pretty beaten up, right? He's he's dealt with a lot of injuries over his career. He's suffered some health concerns. And I think sometimes people use his training style to say, hey, look, like he destroyed his body doing this stuff. And I, and I think it's, I don't like extrapolating evidence from anecdote. I mean, he is probably one of the most, probably the largest, I, I think there are bigger bodybuilders, but you know, he's one of the biggest bodybuilders of all time. He sustained that level of muscularity and that training style for a really long time. And there's probably a relationship there. But again, you get some of the other bodybuilders at that time, Dorian Yates is, you know, seemingly, I mean, they're, they're all going to have like injuries over the years, sure. but Dorian, Jay Cutler, a lot of these other iconic bodybuilders, Phil Heath, they're, they're walking around and they otherwise seem like pretty normally functional human beings, whereas Ronnie's quite disabled at this point. 
Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but you go back to like the, the the Arnold era bodybuilders who also had a very high volume. And, you know, somebody like Arnold or somebody like Franco Colombo were also lifting very heavy loads, heavy squats, heavy bench press, heavy, you know, all the same stuff that Ronnie was doing. Um, and, you know, obviously Father Time catches everybody and they're not as able, obviously Franco is no longer with us, but somebody like those guys aren't maybe as disabled as say Ronnie is now so you can't necessarily extrapolate that out either and say that oh it was a high volume training and and that's why his body is beat up it could be a lot of things he could have been predisposed to that he was also a cop who sat in his police cruiser for a living you know that's not going to do a lot of good for your hips and your back either so um you know could there be more wear and tear because of the high volume training perhaps but it also you know it's not fair to just pin it on that solely um, just because of what you see. You and I agree 100% on that one. Now, what about all the TikTok biomechanics? I mean, I say that sort of facetiously <laughs> because yeah, I, I think there are some really great educators and practitioners. I mean, one of my favorites would be Muscle Doc Jordan Shallow. I'm finishing up Prescript yeah. Level 1. I highly endorse that course. And I think, to me, he's probably, I've seen the best deep dive on training anatomy, uh, what I would consider to be biomechanics. I don't think they, they really brand it as biomechanics, although I think it ultimately is a good understanding of, they talk about muscle action, muscle function, et cetera. And then we see a lot of like, I, I laugh at, you know, this is like not everything needs to be a single arm, you know, cable exercise, which I think is sort of taken over a little bit. Any thoughts on helping people navigate what's valuable versus what's maybe dubious, maybe not necessarily helpful, Maybe it's too in the weeds. Yeah. And when it comes to that stuff, I think it is always going to be within the context of what the goal of the individual is. So um, somebody who maybe is very focused on maximizing the, the growth of a, of a very, of a particular muscle, let's call it, let's say it's the glutes or the biceps. Maybe there is some merit to um, the angle of which you are doing the exercise from and the foot placement or you know the the angle of the cable when you're doing the bicep curl or whatever there there probably is a few percentage points that you're going to gain from that but if you're like most people you're not nerding out about like how do i how do i get literally like the 100 most effective stimulus on my biceps possible you're just trying to gain some muscle you're just trying to be active you're just trying to have fun with it in the gym you're trying to find some way to enjoy yourself when you're there because most people have to really psych themselves up and convince themselves to go to the gym um, you know unless they have a really amazing trainer like yourself where they're like i just want to go hang out with this guy you know <laughs> what i mean so um uh but uh you know, at the end of the day, I like the, con I, I have no problem with it. If that's their sort of um, avenue that they want to focus on is the biomechanics of everything. I think that there's a way to do it that is more helpful than it is harmful. I think sometimes you can scare people away from like, well, you shouldn't be doing this exercise because it's not stimulating your X, Y, and Z muscle the best or or whatever. When in reality, it's like, you know, if they like that exercise and it's stimulating it even 50% as well, they're still going to get growth. They're still going to get stronger. They're still going to be doing what we want them to be doing, which is being active. And so um, that's kind of how I go about it. One of my favorite things I see is 
with the what what I like to sort of pigeonhole is the TikTok biomechanics stuff is you hear a lot of things like oh bent over barbell rows suck for hypertrophy mm. or or other things like this. It's like or every classic bodybuilding exercise ever sucks for hypertrophy. Here go do the single arm cable exercise. Like, yeah, you know, if Ronnie Coleman trained this way, he would have been even better. It's like, holy shit, guys. Uh, and, and another concept that uh, Jordan Shallow talks about a lot is muscular co-contraction. So it's like, it's not necessarily just about the direct stimulus you can align on the fibers of the specific muscle that you're working. That's actually smart stuff if you do it right. But it's like, okay, you're bent over doing a barbell row. Yes, chances are you will not be able, most people will not be able to take their lats to failure with the load that would stimulate their lats in a bent over barbell row. Chances are your spinal rectors or your grip or both will, you will kick before your lats will. That being said, you're probably getting pretty good stimulation of your lats. And what do you got? We've got, um, that's weird. It's like a little huh. thumbs up bubble just popped up on the screen. I don't know. What I liked it, what you had to say. It seemed to. <laughs> I, I did a thumbs up yeah. thing, I think, here. So yeah. anybody, if I ever air the videos of these, someone's going to get kind of confused. Uh, <laughs> let me get back on track. That really threw me off. Uh, you, you're getting your whole, you have an isometric hold on your spinal rectors, your glutes, your hamstrings, and all this upper back musculature, you know, forearms, you name it. So I, I'm not willing to discard a barbell row. And while I think we can look at the classic bodybuilders and say they did a lot of stupid shit, they also foundationally figured out most of the things, like the rep range thing where it's like, you know, a lot of the, the growth is in the, the 8 to 12 and strength is lower and endurance is higher. Well, we know now that you can build muscle any rep range, but if you're doing mostly like, you know, near failure sets of three, you know, your three rep max, four rep max, it's like, that's, pretty stressful on your joints, very time intensive to recover from. You're not going to get a lot of stimulus per set. You know, so it's not at all an efficient way to train for yeah. muscular like hypertrophy. And it doesn't work at all for shit like bicep curls. Your three rep max yeah. bicep curl is just not. Unless you want to, unless you want to tear a bicep uh, tendon. Yeah. Totally. Right. You know, or yeah. like side laterals or stuff like this. So this stuff yeah. doesn't work. And then I haven't met a lot of people who consistently enjoy doing sets of 20 to 40 to near failure or anything. It's it's torturous. It's good to like throw it in there. And what happens? A sweet spot of really efficient trading tends to be that eight to 12 rep range to near failure. Yeah. So it's like the bodybuilders kind of figured it out and the science, you know, absolutely takes it further. But when it comes down to practically training a client, like this shit works. I, yeah, anyway, exactly. and it's not just, I, I'm very, I love the the research. Like Brad Schoenfeld, I think is amazing. You know, he's one of the, the or he's pretty much the preeminent researcher on muscle hypertrophy would have done a lot of that works. Dr. Stu Phillips, they're great guys. So like, I love what they're doing, but at the end of the day, I think practically it comes down to it. I spend most of my time with people in those classic rep ranges. If their goal is, is muscle hypertrophy. Yeah. Obviously. I think it's, it, it's, it's, I think you hit it on the head there. It's just, it's not that eight to 12 is magic. And that's where the, where you can only build muscle. It's that that just happens to be a more comfortable rep range for people to a reach close enough to failure to stimulate the muscle maximally. And B um, you know, it's a load that is not dangerous for most people. Um, and it's also more fun and enjoyable for people in that rep range because the set lasts a certain amount of time within that rep range. You start getting to like 15, 20, 25, 30 reps. Now it's just like a, a you know, a battle of attrition of when their mind's going to give up versus their muscles actually getting close to failure. And then 
anything less than that for the general population feels a little bit scary at first. So like, uh, you're going to make me do three reps with that much weight. Like that's, uh, that, I don't know if I can do that. And then it becomes a mind game. So then in that middle range, it's just like comfortable both mentally and physically, um, for them getting back to your, uh, comment about the barbell bent over barbell rows. I think, um, one thing I've seen that people do with the science, which I love the science. I went to school and, 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 and loved it. And, and I believe in the science, right. But, is they get caught up in the weeds of like, well, that's not maximally stimulating or we're not getting close enough to failure of the lats for it to be effective. And I think they lose sight of the fact that when we say that getting to say RPE seven or eight plus, you know, one to two or even three reps shy of failure, as long as you get within that range, that that's going to have a maximal stimulation of the muscle fibers for growth. Um, and maybe as you get more advanced, you need to be a little bit closer, you know, RPA or nine, but it's not, I don't, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that it's that you get to RPE seven and that's when you start building muscle. Every rep before that will still build some muscle. It's just incrementally getting up to this maximal point. And so even if the lats in a bent over barbell row don't get to RPE eight, for the lats. So maybe they get to RPE five or six, meaning if you had some magical ability to take your forearms and your spinal erectors out of it, and you could keep going, you could get a few more reps with your lats only. It doesn't mean that the, those reps didn't help your lats build muscle. And it doesn't mean that the stimulus on your lats from that versus like a, you know, single arm cable pull down or something like that isn't going to um, be effective in, in in another way as a different kind of stimulus. So I think people lose sight of that. They try to they put everything into this sort of myopic view. And I think that that does some disservice to just strength training as a whole. Love this. Here's another thing too. It's We don't take individual exercises in isolation. You're looking at, all right, well, if you're right. not every trains like, you know, bodybuilders tend to do more of like a pull day or straight up back day. Sure. And I like that sort of stuff. Gen pop, it's probably a little bit, you know, more full body, but a lot of the time we're not doing one lat exercise in isolation. If the goal is maximizing lat hypertrophy, you're probably going right. to sit down and do some seated cable rows or maybe some dumbbell rows or, you know, some vertical pulling type stuff. And across the entirety of the workout, you're probably able to take those muscle fibers to failure because what we're alluding to here, and I'll, I'll make it explicit is to maximize muscle growth. We have to fatigue the largest muscle fibers, the largest muscle fibers will only effectively turn on for to oversimplify by getting really, really up close to failure. If we're not stimulating those larger muscle fibers by getting near failure, they're not going to get the stimulus to ultimately grow. So that's what that is all about. But it doesn't necessarily mean that every set of every exercise has to actually hit that threshold. Can, yeah. can you, you said something I wanted you to explain this more because I love this. Uh, you mentioned about the mind giving up versus the body. Can you help people understand both from the everyday person, but also the trainer pushing the client failure. I think a lot of people are afraid to take relative beginners to failure because I think a lot of them don't actually have that skill. I think it's an important skill mm -hmm. to learn, but the whole idea of like your, <clears throat> your mind telling you to give up before your muscles would actually reach failure. I even see it. It's much more common, I guess, with uh, with more beginners or less experienced people. But I see it all the time, even in myself, after 15 years of, of training. 
being right. I'm not, <laughs> I'm still in, uh, vulnerable to the same thing um, where you reach this point in a set where it's feeling very difficult and your brain is trying to convince you to stop doing the thing that is difficult because your, your brain's trying to conserve energy most of the time. Like it, it's hardwired not to, you know, put itself into danger. Um, and, and so, you know, you reach this point, um, where things are burning and it, and this is more the case with higher rep sets, like I said, because of the fact that now it's been 30, 40, 50 seconds that you've been doing this exercise, we're getting into some different energy systems beyond just what your, your muscle fibers are trying to, um, produce where you're getting, you know, into different energy sources. And now you're accumulating, accumulating lactate that's burning. You're feeling this burn in the muscles and your brain just says, ah, you know, we're kind of done with this. I think you're done. I don't think you can do another five reps. I think, you know, I think that's good for today. Um, in reality, your, your muscles are, are capable of so much more than what your brain is saying. Um, that, but it's just, it's hard to get into that mindset every single time. Um, and you have to kind of convince yourself to, to push past that, that barrier of what your mind is telling you versus what you know to be true from past experiences. Right. Um, and some days you just don't have it and you're just there to kind of get the workout done. Um, and some days you do. I think that's also part of maintaining the habit, maintaining the overall fatigue load across the week, your recovery, that balance. The the whole concept, it's sort of the proverbial, if someone put a gun to your head, could you could you do three to five more reps? Now, yeah, that has to be qualified by saying like adrenaline's going to kick in there and that changes the change the load. Sure. Like, that's the whole like grandmothers lifting cars off of trapped kids and stuff like that. But the body has governors against that stuff normally voluntarily. But I think most people, if really called upon, could probably squeeze out one to two more reps. Yeah. You know, towards failure. So I think if if I interpret the the research and the science pretty clearly, it's probably in and around like if you're within about five-ish reps, two to five reps of failure, you're probably going to get the stimulation you need to grow. But most people probably aren't very good at the skill of knowing where the true threshold of momentary muscular failure is. So we probably still want to teach people to get close to their experience of failure, which the hope mm -hmm. is it's still within that probably like that two to five threshold, even if it's not actually to their true limits. And that's the philosophy I've always taken into stuff. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And I have clients who are, you know, not as uh, focused on building muscle. They're more focused on building strength or athleticism or just general fitness. But when they're really concerned about, I really want to put on muscle, then I have sort of a, a general guideline of how often I want them to go to failure just to know what that feels like and remind themselves what that feels like so that they can, um, you know, more accurately see where they where they got to in every set. So like if it's an accessory exercise, I might then I might have them go to failure on that exercise maybe once a week or once every two weeks on the last set of, of the day just to feel that, right? Oh, okay. That's what I, I thought I was three reps shy, but I was really five reps shy on every set kind of. Um, but if it's a more compound, heavier exercise, um, you know, I use a little bit more discretion on that and, um, you know, maybe not test that quite so often 
because of the fatigue factor and because of I want to make sure that they know how to handle themselves if they get into a situation, say, on a squat where they can't stand back up. Do they know how to safely get out of that if they don't, you know, if they don't have a spot or, you know, something like that? Wrist reward. Right. Pivoting a little bit. uh, You do a lot of very high level nutrition and a lot of high level training stuff. And we, Mm -hmm. I don't know if we necessarily see that as much anymore. So there was a, I think it's a bit of a pendulum. When I first got into the industry as a trainer, we were starting to see precision nutrition, John Berardi come online. And he talked a lot about the importance of being able to understand and have a lot of knowledge about nutrition, which I a hundred percent agree with to be able to offer better service to your clients. And he used to talk about, you know, trainers basically offering a concierge, to everything. And I think the pendulum swung back the other way a bit more recently, where I think people just decided, no, I, I really like this. I want to specialize and I'm either going to be a trainer or an, a nutritionist. And we've seen a very big rise in nutrition coaching in the industry. So you still, you do both at a very high level. You're actually well educated, very well educated on, on both aspects of it. What, what are your thoughts on this? My thoughts are that I, I, I think that both approaches are great. I think if you find that you um, really want to specialize in one or the other, you know, if you're a personal trainer or a coach and um, you know that your efforts are better served, just focusing 100% on exercise and training and, and exercise physiology, then that's great. I think you're going to do the best that you can and do the best for your clients serving um, them in the way that you know best. The other, the other, um, thing to consider is whether you even want to delve into the nutrition side of things as a coach or a trainer, because if you don't have that desire, you're not going to ultimately be benefiting them to the best that you can or the best that they deserve, because you're just not interested in it yourself. You're better off partnering up with a nutritionist who that's their bread and butter. They love doing that. And maybe they don't enjoy the training side of things as much as far as, you know, program design and and personal training and all of that. Um, But if you are somebody who likes to do both and you do have a, you know, a passion and a desire to study both sides of the equation as doing both, because it allows me to, um, you know, a lot of times if you're a trainer, you're going to get questions about nutrition from your your clients. And if you're a nutritionist, you're going to get questions from your clients about training. And so I like to be able to offer them the full package. Um, I know what kind of training I'm giving them and vis-a-vis what kind of nutrition they should be having for the training I'm giving them. Whether I'm looking at even blood work to see, you know, is the training um, that I'm giving them a little bit too high impact and we're seeing some things in the blood work that are troubling because of that, or are we seeing things in the blood work that is because of some nutrient deficiencies? Um, you know, I, I like to be able to tie both those things together. And, and but that's me as an individual being very passionate about both sides. You're also well-educated in this stuff too. And I suppose right. that's the tricky part is, is there, this is a tricky one because I mean, I think education can come from a lot of realms. And it's funny, Mike Isertel and Nick Shaw were on the Renaissance Periodization podcast a little while ago, and they're talking about building brand and whatnot. And they actually, they're, they're friends of mine. So they were talking about me and how I grew media. And Mike is pointing out, rightfully so, that I don't have relevant degrees uh, in in training or nutrition. 
right? My actual formal education, I have a business, uh, honors bachelor of commerce degree. And I got into training much later on. Now, I have dove into trading and nutrition so much that, you know, I've accumulated a very extensive uh, evidence-based education. Mm -hmm. And we could actually talk about your credentials as well, because you also decided partway through a, an exercise science PhD program that it wasn't for you. You didn't mm -hmm. want to complete that after having your master's of science. But is there any sort of way to say, all right, here's a minimum threshold of education or knowledge that people need in order to be able to do a good job with this? Mm, that's such a tough polarizing question, I feel, because you have the people who have all of the education and there's probably a few of those who feel that the the person um, like yourself who doesn't have the formal degrees maybe shouldn't be mm. you know considered the expert um, and then you you have the other side of the argument as well i feel that it's hard to put a minimum threshold on it because there are people like yourself who have who have taken the time to educate yourself through the right sources and the right ways to know just as much as somebody who has the formal education the formal education to me um it's it's obviously proof from an institution that is recognized that you you did what you say you you studied what you said you studied but that information isn't necessarily you know, um, it, it can be accessed really by anybody. It's just put together in a very organized way from other experts, professors who are giving you the information and testing you on the information and they give you a grade and so on and so forth. All of the information that I learned could be accessed if you go on on um, to, uh, you know, say PubMed or whatever research institution and read the science and pick up textbooks or take certifications and all of this stuff, you can learn it all. It's just hard to organize it all for yourself into a curriculum, but it can be done. And so in the end, for me, it's more about how much time that person has spent educating themselves in one way or another, and how much time do they also have working with people? Because there's a lot of people out there who have the degrees, who don't have the practical hands-on experience, and say some ridiculous stuff as well, right? Let's go to the nutrition. I think the training stuff is a little bit harder to pin down in terms of like where you're getting education, but I like what you said about, uh, you know, sort of curating a curriculum. And I think that actually exists in our industry. And there are people who provide that service and precision nutrition would be one of the, you know, the, the gold standards. It's very visible, yeah. very prominent. I think Martin McDonald's yep. uh, MNU is honestly, I think a lot of people consider that one to be the true high level mm -hmm. gold standard for nutrition. I know that, and I believe this is one of the things that you've uh, you have is ISSN has an yeah. excellent, um, the excellent track record reputation for nutrition education. We've got, I recently completed the Renaissance Periodization level one nutrition course. Now they're not offering it that way anymore. They're folding it into something bigger educationally that they're doing, but I did that. And, and I like RP a lot for their nutrition stuff. And I'm yeah. trying to think if there's any other, I mean, I think there are other things. Um, I, I would say from what I understand, Lane Norton and Bill Campbell have something. Yeah. I'm they're probably they're putting be. together very very the clean they're working through the clean health institute or something to that line yeah yeah i've seen them affiliated with that um yeah and yeah. i know that they've got some educational curriculum there so it's if i feel like i trust an evidence-based practitioner and they do a good job of putting 
a course together, certification together, and you know enough people have done it to say, hey, this is actually really good quality. I'd feel pretty comfortable endorsing that that list yeah. I just said there, and I think that can probably bring someone up to speed. Certainly on doing a pretty good job of navigating nutritional questions for certainly gen pop everyday people. I think if you're getting into really high level performance, sport performance, nutrition, I think your your education probably is going to need to go deeper, whether it's formal yeah. or whether it's you just going right to getting the information that you need, as long as you know the right sources. Any further thoughts on that and how someone can curate their own education to do a really good job? Just going to the um, the sources of information that are coming from experts who have been doing it a long time, who have also the formal education themselves, perhaps. So, um, you know, Precision Nutrition, John Berardi, PhD. Um, you, you mentioned Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell taught me a lot what I, of what I know on the nutrition side because I went and did his master's program. And now he's putting on, you know, some courses and maybe putting together something as a whole, you know, big course to do. Well, you're probably going to be getting a lot of the same information that I got um, during my studies because I studied under him. So, you know, go into those types of people, um, you know, recognize experts that are going to put out great information. That's where you really want to be going um, for your own if, if that's something you're trying to brush up on. Now, what about you in deciding, hey, finishing this PhD program wasn't aligned with what I wanted? So the story there is, uh, you know, I started the PhD program. Um, it was actually a, also a dual PhD in exercise physiology and nutrition. Um, I got there. I, I did um, a, a full year there. Um, uh, yeah. And we, you know, I liked it. Um, the education piece, um, there was, to be completely honest, I felt like I was repeating a lot of things that I had learned previously in my master's program. Mm -hmm. um, what really turned me off was just uh, the environment of publishing research wasn't what I what I thought it was going to be and what I wanted to be involved in for my career and for my life. Um, what I really enjoyed was working with people and putting the science to the test and finding what's practically working, what's agreeing with what the science is saying, a practitioner. Um, you know, and there's a lot of great PhDs out there who are doing both. Um, Bill Campbell's one of them, Lane Norton is one of them, you know, all the people we just said, where they're doing both um, education uh, at a research level and practically working with people. But just the the maybe it was the institution I was involved in or the research group I was involved in, and I won't mention any names, but there seemed to be this this focus on how many publications can you put out, almost at the expense of are is what you're studying with these with these studies or these research publications even worth looking at? It was it was almost like how can we take what, what this person said and just shift it very ever so slightly a couple of degrees so that we can put out another publication and, and answer this question that maybe wasn't even that relevant to the, to the population that they were studying, if that makes sense. And so there was this pressure to sort of conform to that, and I just wasn't interested in doing that. Academia status games. I'm, uh, exactly. I'm not lived in that so world, but I know enough it, about them. 
it, it it exists in the same way like social media can become just like a status thing and how many how can you sensationalize your posts to get the most likes and following it was almost the same game with publications how many publications can you put out so that you can say hey i'm the top dog because i've published x number of studies and that's double what anybody else you know in the industry has done and so therefore i am the alpha here you know you alluded to social media and we talked a little bit about this before we got on it's worth mentioning with a little bit of time you have left what's your philosophy towards how you've approached and built social media my approach has just been that i'm going to you know there, there's an approach of being sensational and putting out um you know fantastic you know eye catching headline type of bits to get people drawn in um, and maybe even sort of bending truths to get people to listen to what you have to say. Um, obviously, there's the route of attacking other people and trying to pick apart anything that you can find that they might have said wrong or that, or that you know is going to get a lot of attention. Um, for me, it's just always been, how can I put out information that helps people? Um, you know, how can I uh, try to simplify things for people when it can be so confusing out there? Um, and, and that's just the route that I've gone. Um, you know, I've tried different media mediums, like whether it be reels, whether it be, you know, the Twitter screen cap type of thing, whether it be the infographics. Um, I think recently I've sort of settled into a groove of infographics and those sort of Twitter-like messages just because they they seem to be effective at at putting out some good information to people that they can consume, um, but uh, you know Instagram's always evolving. I'm not on TikTok anymore, but um, you know that's just been my approach: put out good information, and and hopefully it it reaches the right people and the right ears and the right the right eyes. An underlying theme with both what we talk about with your choices about education and with social media is the time cost benefit of any action we take. And I have ridden the horse of Twitter style posts to near death for over four years to continued yeah. and sustain success. And just despite knowing the potential for video, I see a lot of people doing very mediocre reels that don't catch. And then a few people do reels so well, like um, people I know, like um, Beth Varaco and Eric Roberts. Uh, there are a couple of mm -hmm. people. Jordan Syatt's great at all of this media stuff. And they're yes. with his friends of mine. Uh, or um, another friend of mine, Steve Keen. He's based out of the UK. And I've never seen someone grow as fast on Instagram as Steve did with his reels. He weaves yeah. humors, humor, a British accent, self-deprecating humor, sexual innuendo. And he's just got a format and a formula for the way he does his social media. I'll bring him on the podcast in the not too distant future to talk about it. And he went from about, I think, 4,000 4, some odd followers to over 800,000 in under a year. Wow. Right? Yeah. Which, which yeah. I've never seen at that pace before. That's, that, that's absolutely absurd. And he, his stuff is resonant. It does very, very well. And I don't think I would wish that upon myself because I wouldn't want to deal with what comes. I think there's a, a tremendous amount of potential value in having that size of an audience. And I do encourage trainers to lean in and grab you know bigger audience. But... I've been enjoying the pace that I've been doing it at because I've been able to manage it while managing all the other things. So there comes a cost with just sheer magnitude, scale, and reach that I think people have to come to terms with. 
Yeah, it is. I could imagine that it would become overwhelming really quickly. Um, I've grown slowly. I don't have a huge following, but you've done very, very well. But even that, it's like if I had just gone from even um, 200 followers to what I have now overnight, it would be probably really overwhelming. So to to hear somebody go for to 800,000 that quickly. Oh my gosh. I mean, you probably have to hire somebody just to help you manage the inbox, right? And just to manage all of the comments and all that stuff. And I think it just depends on um, what it is that your goal is with your social media. You know, um, if your goal is to be very uh, media driven with your company and put out a lot of content, and, and that's going to perhaps trickle back down into sales of whatever it is that you have to offer, then that's great. Um, if what you're using social media for is more of like a um obviously to help people but almost like a resume of of what you believe in and who you are putting out your ideas and things like that then the the growth might be it might be um smaller or it might be um slower um you know because to uh to put out really good like reels and videos like i almost feel that you you really need like a full-time media team to manage Mm -hmm. to put out that kind of content a lot of times You, you need to hire somebody to to do videos for you and all of that stuff um, and so uh, I, I've, I'm not willing to do that yet. Um, so that's why I haven't done it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I you know what it, it can feel that way. I I think yeah. I'll put up a counterpoint just for the the person listening who wants to do video and feels oh well sure. don't if I don't have those resources and you get the Sam Sulix who sure. defy all that no thumbnails very raw very basic just video captured video right. saying whatever. And then, I mean, I don't like the these type of, I'll call them charlatans, but you're the people who walk through grocery aisles, oh, oat, sure. oatmeal or spinach or whatever. And all they've done is they've done the, the, the cell phone camera, walking in, talk about some sort of thing that they're like, oh, they're demonizing, but they sell something on their website that's similar. So I think ultimately, if you're good at hooks, if you're good at emotionally resonant messages, if you... I don't know, you just have a little bit of charisma with video and you learn as you go. I still think a lot of people can, with relatively limited resources, still do it. I do agree with you. I think that if you're really going to take it seriously, I think it can become very time intensive. So my time cost benefit equation is, hey, listen, I'm going to take some sort of thing I've written, thought about whatever, share it as a, a, a graphic, like a Twitter graphic. Doesn't take me much time to throw it up. And then I have the time to actually try to respond to a lot of the comments. Like if, if there's... Sure. Some are, some are just like, you know, emojis, whatever. I'll just give them a little emoji back. I like to let people know, hey, I'm here. But if someone messages me, I want to give a very thoughtful um, response. So yeah, I want people to go follow you and check out more of what you're doing. I like your media. Very evidence-based, very credible. So where can people find you? We can find me primarily on Instagram um, at Andre C. Vargas. And there's an underscore at the end. Um, I have a website. Um, I'm actually in the process of sort of revamping and, and putting out a new website. Uh, but the website right now is www.thestrengthcave.com. You can also reach that website through my Instagram, but that'd be the primary way to get in touch with me. If you want to send me a DM or anything like that, I'm always happy to chat. Um, and once again, I appreciate you so much for chatting with me today. And, and uh, it was a great conversation. Hopefully we can meet up in person. We likely will in, in future travels, especially if you get out to any of these conferences that I tend to spend a lot of time at. For everybody listening, A, please go support Andres. 
I love what he's doing. And two, and I've been saying this on the more recent episodes, I really want to see growth, significant growth in 2024 with this podcast. I want to get it in front of more people. I'm trying to hit on themes that are going to be a little more accessible to the everyday user in addition to coaches while still, you know, serving the coach audience that I've had for so long. So please take this and share it with someone in your world you think would really get a lot of benefit out of it, whether it's a coach or a lay person. And I appreciate you guys for continuously tuning in. Anyone who stays to the very end, I know is very devoted. So guys, thank you so much. Tune in next week.